Welcome. It's Luke from TRP Podcast. Today's topic is the doctrine of sensitive places as a supposed limitation on the right to bear arms in public for self-defense. Most uh, specifically, the right of concealed carry. Uh, and today we have a wonderful guest. I'm so excited about this guest. I cannot believe we have her on the podcast. The youngest federal judge appointed to the bench by President Trump. And her name <laughs> is Catherine Kimball Mazel, United States District Judge in Florida, Tampa, Florida. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for being here. And Catherine joins us through her judicial writing. Her decision and order in the United States of America versus Emmanuel Ayala as the defendant. It's a criminal case and it involves an employee of the United States Postal Service. I've heard of that. Who carried a gun concealed into a federal facility, a shocker post office where he works, or where, put it this way, where he did work. <laughs> um, this is not going to focus on the status of his employment. That would be a separate issue. Um, this rather focuses on the uh, federal statute, 18 U.S. Code, Section 930A, that prohibits possessing a firearm in a federal facility. Here is Judge Mazel. The United States indicted Emmanuel Ayala, a postal worker, for, for possessing a firearm in a federal facility in violation of 18 U.S. Code Section 930A. Ayala argues that the statute is unconstitutional as applied to him because the historical record does not support a law banning firearms in post offices. C. Bruin. Relying on dicta from earlier cases, the United States responds that the Second Amendment allows it to punish the bearing of arms inside any government building. But the United States Supreme Court has been clear the government must prove to historical, sorry, point to historical principles that would permit it to prohibit firearms possession in post offices. The United States fails to meet that burden. Thus, I dismiss the 930A charge because it violates Ayala's Second Amendment right to bear arms. There was also another, this is me, 
there was also another issue in this case, which we're not going to get into, uh, where he um, apparently resisted arrest. So that's a different issue. We're not going to get into that. This is just on the constitutional issue. But here's some background, and I'm on page two, and you can find this on the internet. If I can, I'll, I'll, I'll link it in the description so you can just check it out. But I mean, this is all over the news, I'm sure, at least in some areas. Um, background. Ayala worked for the U.S. Postal Service as a semi-truck driver hauling packages out of a facility located in Tampa. He possesses a Florida concealed carry permit and kept his firearm, a Smith & Wesson 9mm, concealed inside his fanny pack for self-defense while on the job. <clears throat> From time to time, he carried the firearm onto post office property when retrieving his semi-trek from work for extra protection on the short walk to and from the employee parking lot. On September 14, 2022, Ayala wore his fanny pack with the gun inside as he walked from the employee parking lot through the men, uh, metal turnstiles and into the post office. Drink a green tea. After he clocked in, two agents from the U.S. Postal Service Office of Inspector General stopped him and tried to detain him. Why? This is interesting that it's not in here. It's not in the question. It's not answered. It's not even posed. But did someone see him with the gun? There Was there an anonymous tip? Did he show the gun to anybody? Um, I'd like to know the background on that. Of course, it's not really relevant here, but it's, it is interesting to know. So these two agents stopped him and tried to detain him. Ayala fled, but was eventually arrested by officers from the Tampa Police Department. A grand jury indicted him for violating 18 U.S.C. 930A by knowingly bringing a firearm into a federal facility and by forcibly resisting arrest. Now, it, it, I would really like to know the, the details there. Did he admit that he had the gun? Did they grab the fanny pack? Did they... What was the basis of this seizure in the search? Um, did he show the gun? Did it was it not properly concealed? Did it was it falling out? You know, did it did he accidentally drop it somewhere? Did he, you know, I I'm just curious. I'm sure all those are gonna be uh talked about in his his case coming up if it's not dismissed. Ayala moves to dismiss both counts. <clears throat> okay. So I'm going to skip down here to the legal standard. In a criminal case, a party may raise uh, by 
pre-trial motion, any defense objection or request that the court can determine without trial on the merits. Excuse me. I'm about to sneeze. Pardon. An issue may be resolved on the pretrial motion under Rule 12b-1 if uh, trial on the facts surrounding the commission of the alleged defense would be of no assistance in determining the validity of the defense. That's from Covington, 1969. On to page four, analysis. Yay, my favorite part. This order resolves only Ayala's Second Amendment challenge. The sole relevant facts are that Ayala carried a firearm into an ordinary post office, which neither party disputes. As a result, this issue presents a pure question of law ripe for disposition. Because I conclude that count one must be dismissed on Second Amendment grounds, I need not consider Ayala's vagueness challenge. Ayala's challenge to count two cannot be resolved by a motion to dismiss because even if Ayala could have lawfully resisted arrest, a jury must resolve the contested factual issues surrounding his uh, resistance. So the Second Amendment challenge, New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, 597 U.S. 1, 2022, requires the United States to present historical support for Section 930A application to Ayala, which it fails to do. <laughs> Let's just stop right there. You wonder why I'm doing what I'm doing here. There is so much you can learn by reading these cases. And I, you know, I go through a lot of them. 90% of them you'll never see me uh, do on the podcast that I cover, but in, in my production efforts here. But uh, I only pick the best ones. And the reason I picked this judge is because, first of all, she's the youngest judge that Trump appointed to the bench. Secondly, uh, she caught my attention when she struck down the CDC mask in airplane mandate across the country. Yes, that was her that did that. It's the same woman, same same federal judge. And, uh, you know, I'm, ex I'm, I'm ecstatic. If you can't tell, I'm excited. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm just going to read that again. The U.S. Supreme Court requires the United States, that's the executive branch, okay? The judicial branch requires the executive branch to present historical support for this prosecution, which it fails to do. Uh, post offices have existed since the founding as have threats to the safety of postal workers and the public entering those locations, yet the historical record yields no distinctly similar historical regulation addressing those safety problems by regulating firearms in post offices. See Bruin at 26. Bruin deems this absence strong evidence of the statute's unconstitutionality, even if the lack of a distinctly similar historical regulation was not dispositive 
the United States have offered no relevant historical analogs. Although not my burden, I conduct a more robust historical inquiry and likewise uncover no tradition of relevantly similar firearms regulations. I then dispel two misapprehensions held by the parties. First, nothing in Supreme Court dicta establishes that the United States may ban firearms in all government buildings. Second, the scope of the Second Amendment right is a legal question, not a factual one, and I need not hold an evidentiary hearing to resolve it. Instead, the government bears the burden to identify historical evidence supporting its challenged regulation. In the in the call, uh, margin there, I say, damn, son. Finally, I explain why the United States errs in arguing that its proprietorship of federal land and buildings excludes vast swaths of the country from the protection of the Second Amendment. Are you enjoying this? I am. I'm on page five. One, Bruin's Second Amendment standard and the federal statute. When a firearm regulation is challenged under the Second Amendment, the government must affirmatively prove that the challenge regulation is part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. That's from Bruin at 19. Now, I'm not going to always tell you when she's quoting. I think I've said that like a million times these last 10 episodes. But, um, okay, I'm saying it again. I have to say it. Sometimes she's quoting. I'm not always going to say uh, quote and unquote. Back to Judge Mazel. If the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, then the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. And the government must then justify its regulation by demonstrating that it is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation. Regulations that sweep beyond our historical tradition flout the Second Amendment's unqualified command that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. <clears throat> this historical test often requires a searching inquiry, but not always. When a general societal problem has persisted since the founding, the inquiry is fairly straightforward. The lack of a distinctly similar historical regulation addressing the problem is relevant evidence that the challenged regulation is inconsistent with the Second Amendment. That's quoting Bruin at 26. Likewise, if earlier generations addressed the societal problem but did so through materially different means, that is evidence that a modern regulation is unconstitutional. On the other hand, cases that implicate unprecedented societal concerns or dramatic technological changes require courts to consider how and why historical regulations burden a law-abiding citizen's right to armed self-defense. Stated differently, addressing regulations that were unimaginable at the founding will often involve reasoning by analogy, a commonplace task for any lawyer or judge. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's just doing law. 
This latter approach, which requires the government to identify a well-established and representative historical analog, has caused some confusion. Well, I don't think it's caused that much confusion, but thank you for pointing it out, Judge. I don't know if it has caused confusion. I think it's just rebellion. That's me. To be clear, I'm on page seven. That inquiry requires a historical example that is relevantly similar to the challenged regulation, uh, not a historical twin. And when the government's proffered examples are not directly on point, courts must distill the underlying legal principles from the historical record. In other words, I must determine whether modern and historical regulations impose a, a comparable burden on the right of armed self-defense and whether that burden is comparably justified. With the Bruin test in mind, I turn to the federal statute, which provides that, now she's quoting the federal criminal code here, except as provided in a subsection not relevant here, whoever knowingly possesses or causes to be present a firearm or other dangerous weapon in a federal facility other than a federal court facility or attempts to do so shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than one year or both. A federal facility is a building or a part thereof owned or leased by the federal government where federal employees are regularly present for the purpose of performing their official duties. So far, so good. Makes sense to me. I don't see any problems. Let me just make sure. Okay. Possessing a firearm in a federal facility is an activity that falls within the plain text of the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment guarantees the right, the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. Quoting Heller, 592. Thus, the United States must show that a ban on firearms in ordinary post offices is consistent with our nation's founding era tradition of firearms regulation. Section 2, Section 930A's application to post offices has no support, historical support. I'm on page 8. The United States concedes that there is no evidence of firearms being pro prohibited at post offices specifically or of postal workers being prohibited from carrying them at any time of the founding. Oh, sorry, at the time of the founding. Can we just camp out right there for a sec? I think the United States just lost the case there. They concede that, and yet they want to prosecute him still. Are these attorneys not reading? Or is something else going on there? 
Maybe they can read just fine. But the, the Supreme Court can't enforce its own ruling. Maybe they're just, maybe um, they're throwing the dice and they're hoping something sticks. They just hope they can just ignore it. Probably, they're probably Democrats, these United States attorneys here. I can't imagine doing this job as a Republican and just ignoring the Constitution, especially when you have discretion as a United States attorney or assistant attorney. Well, their bosses are Democrats, that's for sure. The U.S. attorney is def definitely a Democrat. And the, the attorney general is a Democrat. Merrick Garland. And he's the one that okays all this stuff. Okay. Despite the opportunity to present supplemental briefing, <clears throat> the United States fails to point to sufficient historical evidence supporting... 930A's application here. Wow. Roman numeral one, lowercase. The historical rec record yields no distinctly similar historical regulation addressing a problem that has persisted since the founding. Constitutional rights are enshrined with the scope they were understood to have when the people adopted them. That's quoting Bruin at 34. That's quoting Justice Thomas, who wrote the opinion. To decide the constitutionality of this federal statute, I must ascertain the scope of the Second Amendment right against the federal government in 1791. As explained earlier, if a, society, a general societal problem has persisted since the founding, the lack of a distinctly similar historical regulation addressing the problem is relevant evidence that the challenged regulation is inconsistent with the Second Amendment. That's quoting Bruin at 26. Let me read that again. It's kind of an important sentence. Okay. The, the general societal problem. So what is government <clears throat> at its best do, supposed to do, according to its proper design? Well, um, according to its proper design, uh, defining and punishing real criminal activity is a classic feature of government. Okay. I think it's appropriate for government to do that. Always has been. Now, government oftentimes screws that up as they're doing here. Either they don't define the crime correctly and they include innocent conduct 
under the rubric of criminal, which is just a basic problem, or um, they don't do it right. <laughs> they don't, they don't, uh, they screw up the evidence. Um, they screw up the prosecution of a guilty person. In the worst case scenario, they they prosecute an innocent person. Okay, which is what's happening here. And Judge Mazel is trying to clarify and, and straighten all that out. Here's the sentence again. If a general societal problem has persisted since the founding, meaning when the Second Amendment was adopted, the scope it was understood to have at the time it went into the Constitution the way it is, the lack of a distinctly similar historical regulation addressing the problem is relevant evidence that the challenge regulation is inconsistent with the Second Amendment. In other words, the founders did were aware of the problem of murder and attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon. They were aware of that at the time of the founding. What did they do to deal with that from government perspective? Well, they defined those crimes and they would seek to punish those crimes. What they did not do is take innocent conduct, people just trying to defend themselves from those crimes, and make that innocent conduct, they did not do this, they did not make that innocent conduct a criminal offense, which is what Biden is doing here, which is what the, the U.S. Code does. And so... If you go to uh, the supremacy clause in the in the United States Constitution, it lists some things that are the sup the supreme law of the United States. Federal statutes are considered the supreme law of the United States. So are treaties. So is the Constitution. What happens when they conflict? Which one prevails? Which one is the supreme law of the land? Well, it's in the Constitution, the Supremacy Clause. Okay? So th remember that. It's the Constitution that creates the federal legislature, which can, in the first place, create federal statutes. It's the Constitution that creates the presidency, which signs them into law. It's the Constitution that creates the, the federal court system the possibility for that and the Supreme Court. And now the way, and, and Judge Chief Justice Marshall said this a long time ago, who was the last of the founders. My One of my favorite founders, um, in, in some respects, he might be my favorite founder, but he clarified that in Mar Marbury versus Madison, the principle that if a federal statute, which comes about later than the Constitution, conflicts with the Constitution, then 
the rule is different than ordinary statutory interpretation. The way it works in ordinary statutory interpretation is that the later statute always trumps the earlier statute. It supersedes. It's like a will in a way. You know, when you make out a will, uh, that's the will unless you make another one later, in which case whatever conflicts in the later one with the earlier one supersedes the earlier one. That's how it, it's like that with statutes. A statute that's made later, if it conflicts with an earlier statute, the later one wins. The later one supersedes the earlier one. All things e being equal. But when you have a statute that, that's later than the Constitution, and the statute that's later, that's more recent, that's progressive, that's cutting edge, conflicts with that old sucker, that old Constitution. In constitutional interpretation, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land and trumps the statute. The statute dissolves. It's void. And all she's doing is just saying that. It's basic constitutional interpretation. If a general societal problem has persisted since the founding, the lack of a distinctly similar historical regulation addressing the problem is relevant evidence. It's relevant legal evidence that the challenged regulation is inconsistent with the Second Amendment. And then if it's inconsistent, the Second Amendment prevails, not the statute. And Ayala is not guilty of that crime. Okay? Because the crime was ill-conceived. It wasn't a crime. And it, they, you call it a crime, it doesn't make it a crime. It's not really a crime. doesn't matter what the United States says. The, the sucky thing here is that the United States is supposed to be defending the United States Constitution. But it doesn't defend itself, which is part of the reason we have this podcast. The Constitution requires people to defend it, people who believe in it, who understand it. And I'm telling you, we have a whole... We have millions of people going to college who don't understand it. A lot of the reason they don't understand it is because they're taught by great inflating Democrats and Me Too Republicans. Me Too Republicans are the ones who just want to fit in with the Democrats. Me Too. I'm uh, I'm diverse. I'm um, I'm into exclusion and uh, divert uh, great inflation. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm, um, I'm in style. I'm cutting edge. Um, I'm not going to name any names. Uh, oftentimes these people don't like to be called Republicans. <laughs> you know, they, they call themselves some something else like conservative or something. 
Well, what are you conserving? You're conserving your um, ill-conceived effort to fit in with the popular people. That's what you're conserving. If earlier generations addressed the societal problem, but did so through materially different means, that too is relevant evidence that a modern regulation is unconstitutional. Here, any potential societal problems that Section 930A might seek to remedy have persisted since the founding. Although the United States does not explain a specific reason for banning firearms in federal facilities, 930A could reasonably be understood to target one of three problems. First, Congress might have sought to promote public safety generally. Of course, if the United States purports uh, purpose amounts to a policy disagreement about the virtue of the right to bear arms, the Constitution forecloses that as an impermissible basis to regulate. <laughs> Even if a proper purpose exists, it still remains unclear why restricting firearms in government buildings rather than in private buildings or public spaces generally would uniquely promote public safety. Public safety concerns were not unknown to the founders, yet such concerns were not addressed through sweeping bans on firearm possession. Just the opposite. Many colonial statutes required individual arms bearing for public safety reasons. Wow, that is Jordan shattering the backboard right there. A second concern might be some combination of postal employee safety and uh, ensuring the efficiency of uh, mail delivery. Again, these concerns pose no new problems. Post offices have existed since before the founding. The British ran postal lines up through the revolution and the colonies started their own competing system for intercolonial mail service when they declared independence. I'm on page 11. By 1831, postal employees accounted for 76% of the civilian federal workforce. Here, here, those are the good old days, except for slavery, when the Democrats were defending slavery back then. The, the Republican Party didn't exist yet. All right, I'm going to take a swig of green tea. Bear with me. Since the post office's creation, mail carriers have faced the risk of violence. Passengers of 19th century stagecoaches, which carried mail, risked death or injury if coaches were attacked by robbers or Indians. Recognizing this reality, Congress in the first half of the 19th century appropriated money to reward individuals who helped apprehend the postal robbers. Let me just say something here, which I love that she does this. Uh, so there was crime, okay, murder, robbery. You ever heard of the Ten Commandments? You're on the right track. 
murder, stealing. Okay. Uh, attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, while stealing, in other words, armed robbery. Okay, not new. It's very old. Okay, it's classic criminal law to define the elements of those crimes and establish procedures for apprehension and punishment of those individuals who are guilty of those crimes. So let me read this again. Recognizing this reality, Congress in the first half of the 19th century appropriated money to reward individuals who helped apprehend the people who were guilty, the people that were really guilty of real crime. What a concept. In other words, what she's saying is the founders didn't make up new crimes that had never existed before, like criminalizing self-defense. That had never existed before in a legitimate way. Yes, tyrannical governments have done that in the past. Um, I mean, you know, kings have done that in the past, but it's they're always acting outside the law when they do that, the natural law. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you can't defend yourself from crime. It doesn't say that. So, and that's just one source of law. The, the natural law is another source. In the latter half of the 19th century, when locomotive became the dominant way to move mail, bandits threatened postal workers aboard trains. Yet the federal government never sought to ban firearms to protect employees or secure mail delivery. In fact, when mail train robbers became a growing threat in the early 20th century, the post officer general armed railway mail clerks with government-issued pistols from World War I. This reminds me, I just now rem remembered seeing at an auction a Colt revolver, and it was called, I, I, it had something to do with the post office. I think it was, a, I want to say it was a twenty-two, And they're rare. I remember looking at it and and kind of wanting it. <laughs> it was too rich for my blood, though. But but yeah, it was. Um, I'm going to look that up. Look it up. Tell me about it in the comments. Yeah. Although the general societal problems of violence directed toward post postal employees and threats to mail delivery have persisted have persisted since at least the founding. There is a lack of distinctly similar historical regulation addressing that problem. As the United States acknowledges, the first prohibition on firearms possession in government buildings was not codified until 1964. 
Uh, and the first regulation specifically banning arms on post office property was codified in 1972. Boo. Did Nixon sign that? Boo, 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 boo. The 1964 one was Lyndon B. Johnson, which does not surprise me because he was a Democrat. But if Nixon signed that, I'm going to be mad at Nixon here. Section 930 itself was not enacted until late 1988. Boo. Tell me Ronald Reagan didn't sign that. <sighs> he was getting senile when he signed it. The final potential concern that Section 930 might address is intimidation during official government proceedings. This generalized concern was known at the founding as evidenced by a handful of founding era anti-intimidation laws banning firearms during specific times and at specific places. Yet there is no evidence that Congress ever sought to address intimidation at post offices with firearm bans. And as I explain in the next subsection, the legal principles supporting those few anti-intimidation laws do not apply to post offices in any relevant sense. In short, post offices do not resemble the narrow classes of government buildings that were at times firearm-free zones at the founding. All of the societal problems identified above have either persisted since the founding without being regulated by means of broad firearms prohibitions or are inapplicable to ordinary post offices like the one here. Even according to the United States, the first firearms prohibitions in relevantly similar federal buildings did not appear until the mid-20th century, over 170 years after the founding. That fact is relevant evidence that Section 930A is inconsistent with the Second Amendment as applied to Ayala. Indeed, Bruin classifies this scenario as fairly straightforward. Roman numeral two, lowercase, there is no relevantly similar historical analog to section 930A as applied to post offices. The United States does not contend that the statute addresses unprecedented, uh, unprecedented societal concerns or dramatic technological changes requiring comparison to a well-established and representative historical analog. Nor could it, as the government attempts to address age-old problems through a new and near-complete firearms ban. <laughs> but even if Bruin con contemplated that old problems might be constitutionally addressed through novel regulations, the United States fails to identify any relevantly similar analog. And my own research uncovers none. Uh, she has to provide the briefing herself because the U.S. is not doing its job. Thus, the United States fails to carry its burden under Bruin to identify a historical tradition 
from the founding that supports the application of 930A to an ordinary post office. Uh, do you guys know what she's talking about there? If you look in a post office, it has a little sign that has a gun, no guns. It's supposed to make you feel safer, I guess. I don't know why. doesn't make any sense to me. The United States argues that some founding era laws prohibited firearms in legislatures, uh, polling places, and courthouses. Legislatures, polling places, courthouses. As the Supreme Court has explained, there were relatively few such laws. Okay. The historical rec record reveals relatively few 18th and 19th century sensitive places where weapons were altogether prohibited. And the United States singles out only one example, a Delaware law banning arms at polling places before the founding. It then cites scholarship that refers to other examples, such as a pair of Maryland laws that prohibited arms while the legislature was in session. After our, uh, offering this smattering of evidence, the United States proposed that Prohibition on carrying arms into centers of government deliberation existed at the founding. The United States concludes by baldly proclaiming that post offices and government buildings are, at a minimum, analogous. <laughs> this unreasoned comparison fails. First, not every government building, certainly not ordinary post offices, constitutes a center of government deliberations. Second, the United States does not explain how or why the statute burdens a law-abiding citizen right to armed self-defense in the same manner as laws prohibiting possession in legislative bodies, polling places, or courthouses. nor could it. The United States historical examples are not relevantly similar to the statute in several important ways. For example, the statute completely forbids possession in most government buildings. By contrast, the Maryland Legislative Assembly bans applied, all, uh, the Legislative Assembly bans applied only when the legislature was in session on page 15. These regulations contain meaningful time and place constraints. They were not perpetual exceptions to the right to bear arms. Finally, even if uh, section 930A were analogous to these statutes, I doubt that so few regulations could suffice to show a tradition. Though I'm not obliged to sift the historical materials for evidence to sustain the United States statute, I do so here. Unlike the plethora of post-Bruin uh, challenges to the statute, this case presents a unique sensitive places challenge that could have broader implications 
So a thorough historical inquiry might inform future challenges. And skipping a little bit here on page 16. To articulate the legal principles that underlie the Second Amendment, I begin by looking to English common law. After all, the Second Amendment codifies a pre-existing right inherited from our English ancestors. And because the founding era colonies and states were similarly codifying natural and customary law rights. Did you catch that? They were codifying natural rights. Their understanding of the right to bear arms is particularly informative about the scope of the Second Amendment's protections. Together, this evidence illustrates several legal principles, but none justify this statute applied to Ayala. Okay. And here she goes through and talks about some of the history. Um, and she quotes TR podcast, TRP, TR podcast. That's us, the Republican professor podcast guest, Stephen P. Hallbrook in his book, The Right to Bear Arms page 39. Yeah, Dr. Hallbrook made it in there. Um, and this is interesting evidence. Uh, the long or the short of it is that, uh, in particular, classical criminal law contemplated punishing only criminal actions, like riding through and terrifying people with arms or with an intent to commit a violent crime. In other words, simply having the arms for self-defense, that was not considered uh, uh, in these examples, that was not considered a crime, rightly so. Um, I'm on page 18. She talks about the statute of Northampton. Uh, three states and possibly the District of Columbia enacted near duplicates of the statute of Northampton around the founding, and each included a version of this prohibition. But neither the statute of Northampton nor its copycats helped the United States here. First, some copycats exclusively applied to judicial officers and thus extended only as far as bans in courthouses. Um, let me read the statute really quick. I'm going to go back to page 16 so, uh, so you can get the text here. Here's the statute of Northampton, 1328. No man, great or small, of what condition soever he be, except the king's servants in his presence and his ministers in executing of the king's precepts or of their office, and be as... Um, and as such be in their company assisting them, and also upon a cry made for arms to keep the peace, and the same in uh, such places where such acts happen, be so hardy as to come before the king's justices or one of the king's ministers doing their office with force and arms, nor bring no force in a fray of the peace, nor go, nor uh, nor ride armed by night, nor by day in fairs, 
markets, nor in the presence of the justices or other ministers, nor in no, uh, no part elsewhere upon pain to forfeit their armor to the king and their bodies to prison at the king's pleasure. Bruin discounts the latter half of the statute, uh, the ban on going or riding armed, because later English law, as Sir John Knight's case, interpreted that provision to apply to only going um, armed to terrify the king's subjects. In other words, the common law tradition clarified that that statute really should only apply in a criminal way against true criminals, uh, even though it was not worded well, the statute originally was not worded well, to, to apply only to true criminals. Okay, a lot of that information can be uh, seen in Hallbrook, the book there, and Hallbrook's two episodes on the Republican Professor podcast are, of course, ones that I would recommend to you. I recommend all of the the episodes here, but go to Hallbrook to see what kind of a guy he is. He's got a wonderful Southern accent, and he's got a law degree and a PhD. And he's won before the United States Supreme Court in gun-related constitutional cases at least three times, which is a big deal. Okay. So let's go to the an interesting background there. And she doesn't have to do this, but she she did. Um, so the, the, the some of the historical stuff goes through. Let's see, I'm on page 22 now. All right. Page 22. How many government employees are there? There are over 21.3 million government employees across various sectors. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. The sensitive places exception cannot sweep so broadly. Think about all those people that you're dispossessing, all those people that you're discounting their constitutional rights. At most, the United States may be able to analogize to modern-day equivalents of the listed officials from the statute in Northampton. Um, or... To, to the especially high-ranking officials sometimes referred to elsewhere in the statutes of the realm as the king's ministers. Uh, but ordinary postal employees do not fit that bill. What she's saying there is, maybe even if English law is relevant, okay, and that there was a tradition of banning arms uh, for hundreds of years prior to the colonies 
in the English common law uh, that was legitimate, okay, in front of the king and his ministers while they're doing their jobs. And, and if you analogize that uh, to legitimate criminal law that uh, bans arms in all government buildings, and the analogy would be supposedly that postal workers are the king's ministers or something. And what she's saying is the king's ministers is not like an ordinary um, employee like the post office. Okay. Those are ministerial duties to be sure, but they're not high enough employees. It's not sensitive enough work. Like, for example, considering legislation, you know, in, a, in an assembly or uh, while voting is taking place in a polling area. Remember that when that happened? Remember those days? Um, and I, I think the reasoning would be there that if somebody has a firearm they're carrying and it's available to see, um, it, it would possibly be a borderline case because even if the person was innocently carrying it with no meaning, no, or th uh, intending no threat that, um, it, it could possibly be interpreted that legitimately as a threat. And so, you know, during that day you know, during a voting day. So, okay. But so she's saying that postal employees are not analogous. Again, it is the United States burden to point to a relevantly similar historical analog in support of its application to Ayala. To do so, it must marshal the historical record and explain how and why the founders similarly burdened the right to bear arms. The United States does not point to the statute of Northampton, nor any of its copycats, let alone address their meaning. At most, only three of the statutes appear to have extended beyond the context of judicial proceedings. Um, and I think everybody agrees that in a judicial proceeding, like in court, that is a sensitive place for purposes of prohibiting arms um, because of the unique nature of what happens there. Um, the interest of justice is particularly vulnerable when you have like a jury and uh, you're, you're considering criminal charges, or if you have a, dis a civil dispute that involves money and emotions and um, the, the, the issue of intimidation can be very subtle and it might not be something that you can articulate, um, but you kind of know it's there. And well, I was a, a juror on a murder trial in Compton and um, there were some people in the audience that you know, because this is public, right? Anybody can come in. Um, 
there are armed guards there, deputies. Uh, but, you know, after our jury verdict, we uh, we were escorted to our cars by half dozen deputies. Yeah. I mean, it's the closest I've ever gotten to a Secret Service protection detail there. So you you can imagine that that's a place where you want to make sure that people can concentrate on the evidence and the facts. And if they're constantly worrying about defending themselves, then they can't think. And so, okay, fine. That in the interest of justice, that makes sense. And that's a longstanding prohibition. So that would be a prohibition that was applicable at the founding. Um, but is that a post office? No, it's not the same thing. You know, sorting mail and delivering mail and mailing something is not nearly the same thing as trying to determine whether a, 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 a witness is telling the truth. And uh, if you're just trying to tell if a witness is telling the truth or if the lawyer is making any sense if he's committing any logical fallacies and you're trying to keep track of this as a juror and then wondering if the people in the audience might be looking at you to cause harm and kind of threatening you with looking at you in a certain way because you could be followed. I mean, that, that would destroy your ability to concentrate and that would destroy the purpose of the courtroom, which is to do justice and um, a post office has no similarity to that whatsoever. <laughs> and remember, this is in a, in, in a post office parking lot too. I mean, it's not even inside the building. It's 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 build. It's it's okay. It's it's property. It's any property. Okay. All right. I'm. Obviously, you know where I stand on this. A prohibition in legislatures and polling places. Besides the copycat Northampton statutes, I have identified a total of three founding era firearms restrictions that could be understood as sensitive place regulations, two Maryland laws and a provision in the Delaware Constitution. It remains doubtful that such sparse evidence alone can constitute a tradition, uh, according to Bruin at 46. Nevertheless, giving the examples full weight, the general principle to be discerned from them is that governments may restrict firearms possession in places where important and legally definitive government decisions are regularly made. But this principle is inapplicable to 930A because post offices are not ordinarily the sites of such decisions. And then she goes through the history here um, from 1647. Um, talking about legislative places and polling places. Okay. Now, this is one of my favorite parts of her 
decision here. Number three, page 26, the dicta in Heller, McDonald, and Bruin do not establish that all government buildings are sensitive places. This is a very important section here. In the United States' view, all the above historical analysis is unnecessary. It claims that the United States Supreme Court has settled whether arms prohibition in all manners of government buildings can categorically survive a Second Amendment challenge. But I'm not convinced. The United States first points to a passage in Heller, which declared that without an exhaustive historical analysis today of the full scope of the Second Amendment, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast out on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. I'm taking a swig. Without elaboration, the Supreme Court repeated those assurances verbatim in McDonald at 786. And the Supreme Court had good reason not to comment further as neither Heller nor McDonald implicated the issue. The United States contends that these opinions references to schools and government buildings as sensitive places were an express affirmance that the government may regulate firearms in government buildings. The United States misunderstands what these cases held. Neither statement was necessary to the reasoning of either case. They were pure dicta. See Cantor versus Barr, 919, third edition of the Federal Reporter, 437 at 453 and 454. That's in the Seventh Circuit, 2019. Judge Barrett at the time dissenting, and now she's on the Supreme Court. Yes, that, that is dicta. The, the, the gun controllers love to go to that part of Heller. I mean, they pretty much ignore everything else and they just go to that one and they go, oh, yeah, see, yeah, the police are all powerful. That, that's how they read it. Now, Scalia, I don't know what you were doing, buddy. Why did you put that in there? But it's dicta. It wasn't essential to the ruling nor were they even related to the topics addressed. Heller concludes that the right to bear arms includes the right to possess a handgun in the home and disassemble and assembled long guns. <laughs> McDonald extended that right against the states. No sound argument exists that either Heller or McDonald or both logically entail a rule that all manner of government buildings are sensitive places. Notwithstanding any dicta to the contrary, only the holding of a prior consider, sorry, only the holding of a prior decision governs. And the 11th Circuit has clearly reminded district courts not to follow dicta blindly. Okay. Although our holdings are precedential, our dicta are not, it says. 
perhaps I fundamentally part ways with the United States on what constitutes a holding. The traditional view is that a decision's holding consists of the rule that is logically entailed, which kind of implies that you need to like study logic at some point in your, you know, I, and I, I talk to people that are in law school or graduate from law school all the time that never had a logic class. Kind of scary. I mean, it, maybe that's why you can't tell what the holding is because quoting here, Judge Mazel, the traditional view, I'm on page 28, is that a decision's holding consists of the rule that is logically entailed by the reasoning that was necessary to reach the outcome on the basis of legally salient facts and other and the arguments of the parties. This view comports with founding era conceptions of stare decisis. Like cases shall be decided in like manner. Man. I'm on page 29. Lots of quotes. The United States' position that the Supreme Court has specifically identified and settled the issue of whether all government buildings are sensitive places sounds in the predictive approach. Okay. That view of what constitutes a holding concludes statements, includes statements far beyond the facts of a particular case. This understanding of the judicial power raises serious constitutional concerns. See U.S. Constitutional Article 3, Section 2, limiting federal court's jurisdiction to cases or controversies. I'll unpack that for you here. What Judge Merzell is saying is li limiting stare decisis, which is going based on precedent, and the precedent is the holding, and the holding is the rule that's logically entailed, necessary to explain how the court got there in that particular case or controversy, then it's particular case and controversy, obviously it's generalizable to other cases, but it it's generalizable to other cases that are, are within the bounds of the rule in the holding, right? And the holding is fact-specific in some sense. Um, and you can't just generalize, but you can't also do the other thing, which is to make it so specific that it's only about that case. So she's in the middle there. In other words, just because it was about the Second Amendment doesn't mean it generalizes to all Second Amendment claims and all, the plaintiff automatically wins any more to any other any other provision. And it also isn't so specific to that case that it, it's only the parties in that case that would win and nobody else would win in any other case. The, the, the holding is somewhere in the middle there. And there's a difference between holding and dicta. Why? Because the justices are 
they talk a lot and they they write what they're saying down and not all of that stuff is necessary to the holding i mean really all they have to do is th their decisions could be just a few pages and sometimes they're dozens and dozens of pages um and that's because they like to talk they like to explain and that's what Scalia was doing in Heller there in that dicta was he was saying, look, don't think we're too crazy. You know, we're, we're not saying this, we're saying this. Um, but that doesn't mean that the case or controversy in front of them in Holder, sorry, in Heller and in McDonald had anything to do with sensitive places because everybody, it, everybody agrees that the home is not a sensitive place. The home is not a government building. You know, there's a distinction between private and public, even though the Democrats constantly seem to forget that distinction. And they they dis, they forget the distinction between private and public. This understanding of the judicial power raises serious constitutional concerns. It's a limitation on the federal courts to be uh, that they're only empowered to handle the cases in front of them. They're not handled to be a legislature. They're, they're, they can handle the dispute in front of them, case or controversy. That's what distinguishes the court in Article 3 with the legislature in Article 1. The predictive approach improperly broadens the judicial power. That's a very important point that she just made. Page 29. The Democrat approach here improperly broadens judicial power by allowing federal courts to announce binding rules unrelated to any controversy before them. And because Scalia said that, and it was dicta, they think, oh, he's led, he legislated for us, and uh, he said basically, winky, winky, uh, no guns in post offices. And that's not what he was saying. He couldn't have said that according to Article 2, sorry, Article 3, Section 2. That would be an impermissible expansion of his power. Are you getting this? I have a whole chapter on this in my dissertation, Article 3. Very important topic. I'm on page 30. And it contradicts the traditional view stated repeatedly by Chief Justice Marshall that the positive authority of a judicial decision is coextensive only with the facts on which it is made. Oh, I just love this part. What Mazel is, she she loves separation of powers. To preserve separation of powers, you have to cabin the power of each branch according to its design. And she's a federal judge, and she's saying, I have limitations on my power. And you do too, if you're a judge, if you're an appellate judge. Even Scalia, who we love, has limitations on his power. He can't just say whatever he wants. 
to, and have it be part of the holding. The part of the the holding in Heller did not include the dicta that all the Democrats love to uh, quote. That was not part of the holding. That's not part of the law. In other words, is what she's saying. And that's a limitation on judicial power in the Constitution based in Section 2, limiting the jurisdiction to cases or controversies. That's what distinguishes the court from the legislature. Separation of powers. The court is not legislating. The, the legislature cannot judge cases or controversies except for in cases of impeachment. And... Uh, of course, ideally, uh, Article 2, the executive branch isn't doing either of those things. But, of course, we live in the current situation where they're actually doing both. But that's a different topic. But I wanted to point out this Trump's, this Trump judge's concern with preserving separation of powers. Okay, I'm on page 30. And it, it contradicts the traditional view stated repeatedly by Chief Justice John Marshall that the positive authority of a judicial decision is coextensive only with the facts on which it is made. In addition to the comment in Heller and McDonald, the United States relies on a passage in Bruin elaborating on how to apply the sensitive places exception. The court explained that where arms were historically prohibited without challenge, courts can assume regulation in the same manner that is constitutional today. Here's the quote. Consider, for example, Heller's discussion of longstanding laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings. That's Heller at 626. Although the historical record yields relatively few 18th and 19th century sensitive places where weapons were altogether prohibited, e.g. legislative assemblies, polling places, and courthouses, we are also aware of no disputes regarding the lawfulness of such prohibitions. We therefore can assume it settled that these locations were sensitive places where arms carrying could be prohibited consistent with the Second Amendment. And courts can use analogies to those historical regulation of sensitive places to determine that modern regulations prohibiting the carry of firearms in new and analogous sensitive places are constitutionally permissible. That's at that's Bruin at 30, I believe. Is that Bruin? I think, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. The United States claims that these locations in the third sentence refers to sensitive places such as schools and government buildings. Uh, these locations in the third sentence. Um, actually... These locations 
refers to legislative assemblies, polling places, and courthouses. Okay. So the, the United States, the prosecution claims the quote, these locations in Bruin refers to the sensitive places in Heller, schools and government buildings. Even though Bruin was specific, Bruin said three things, legislative assemblies, polling places and courthouses, okay? And so the government therefore declares that it's settled that any weapons in a government building is uh, prohibition is constitutional. The United States suggests suggested reading of this key paragraph is mistaken, both as a grammatical matter and a contextual one. Quote, these locations in the Bruin quote refer to the nearest antecedent 18th and 19th century sensitive places, such as legislative assemblies, polling places, and courthouses, in the second sentence, rather than in, quote, schools and government buildings, unquote, in the first sentence. Yeah. Uh, see Scalia and Garner, uh, their book at 144, where they say a pronoun, relative pronoun, or demonstrative adjective generally refers to the nearest reasonable antecedent. <laughs> the context reinforces that reading. The Supreme Court was providing an example of how the Bruin test works in practice. I'm on page 32. It had earlier explained that largely unchallenged founding era regulations will almost certainly be constitutional. It then provided three examples, legislative assemblies, polling places, and courthouses. The paragraph proceeds to direct lower courts to use these three places as analogs when deciding how the sensitive places exception applies to modern regulations. Finally, opinions are not subject to the rigorous interpretive methods used to discern the meaning of a statute or other positive law enactment. I will not overread this paragraph as if it were setting out definitive boundaries on the sensitive places exception for all government buildings, particularly when Bruin had no occasion to opine on government property at all, to be sure. Bruin's above discussion is, quote, reasoned dicta, unquote, um, and thus not simply to be something to be lightly cast aside, and that's 11th Circuit precedent that she's quoting. As the 11th Circuit notes, there is dicta, and then there is dicta, and then there is Supreme Court dicta. <laughs> the highest level dictum is well thought out, thoroughly reasoned and carefully articulated analysis by the Supreme Court. That's at page, I'm on page 33. Not bare legislative statements like those in Heller and McDonald. That is the quote you want on your coffee mug right there. 
bare legislative statements. She just said that Scalia was making legislative statements in Heller and that Alito made a legislative statement quoting Scalia <laughs> in McDonald. In other words, she just said that dicta, let's not treat that as legislation. Okay. I hope you're able to follow this, but I'm also not watering it down. Why? Because reality is not watered down. All right. Well, I do not cast aside this section of Bruin's analysis. Instead, I follow its lead and I look to the reasoning for why firearms were historically banned in certain places to draw relevant analogies in evaluating this uh, section of the cri federal criminal code. Reading the stat, reading the passage as the United States urges would put Bruin's dicta in direct contradiction with Bruin's holding. Let me read that again. Reading this passage from Bruin as the United States, the prosecutors trying to prosecute this guy, urges would put Bruin's dicta in direct contradiction with Bruin's holding. That's a reductio ad absurdum. In other words, since it reduces to absurdity, you may reject what led to the absurdity, meaning the prosecution's argument reduces to absurdity. Indeed, it would, it would render the analogical reasoning required by Bruin pointless. <laughs> That's a deep point right there. I got to pause to, uh, to admire that. Because there is neither a holding nor reason dicta from the Supreme Court answering whether all government buildings are sensitive places, Bruin requires the above historical analysis with analogies, arguing by analogy, based on history. For the reasons explained already, there is no historical practice of a near total prohibition on firearms in ordinary post offices, and there is no relevantly similar historical analog supporting such a prohibition. Page 34. Whether a firearm regulation is consistent with our nation's historical tradition is a legal question, not a factual one. Before applying the Bruin test, Ayala requests an evidentiary hearing. And she says, I'm not going to do that. I don't need it. I, it's, it's a legal question. I can decide it without a, an evidentiary hearing. I'm, I'm going to, in the interest of time, I'm going to move forward here. At page 35. Beyond, uh, so uh, number five, the United States proprietor argument cannot justify excluding all federal property from Second Amendment scrutiny. Beyond its scant analogical reasoning and its appeal to dicta, the United States supplemental brief argues that its power to exclude individuals from its own property includes the lesser power to restrict the actions or conduct of visitors as a condition of admittance. 
This idea does not fit cleanly into Bruin's established framework. Instead, the United States seemed to contend that it need uh, not apply the Second Amendment to all of its property. It is one thing for the United States to fail to carry its burden under Bruin to fully marshal the historical record. As I have demonstrated above, courts can but need not address such failures by conducting independent historical research. It is another thing entirely to imply that a separate legal principle, whatever it might be, narrows the constitutional right to keep and bear arms outside the Supreme Court's ordinary analytical framework. Accordingly, any government as property owner idea distinctive from Bruin presents a separate legal issue from the searching analysis into the uh, historical record undertaken above. I'm on page 36. The United States dedicates only a handful of pages to advancing its government as proprietor theory and does not explain how the theory interacts with Bruin or any other Second Amendment precedent. The United States simply asserts that at least some gun regulations, those governing citizens whose daily lives bring them onto government property, are exempt from Second Amendment analysis. In other words, are exempt from the Constitution. <laughs> I can find no support for that proposition in the Supreme Court's cases, and the United States furnishes none. In other words, just, they just say, they just assert, they don't argue. Furthermore, although I do not disagree that the government has more flexibility to regulate when acting as a proprietor, that does not mean it can bring criminal charges for conduct that occurs on its property, regardless of an individual's constitutional rights. Put that on a coffee mug. Holy cow. Oh my gosh. That's that's April. And that that's the centerfold in Natural Right magazine right there. Okay. I'm going to quote that again. Furthermore, although I do not disagree that the government has more flexibility to regulate when it is acting as a proprietor, that does not mean it can bring criminal charges for conduct that occurs on its property, regardless of an individual's constitutional rights. Oh my gosh. This lady is a judge because Trump put her in. Applying that principle in any other con context reveals its absurdity. Would an indictment for failing to submit to a full body cavity search when showing up at the District of Columbia Department of Motor Vehicles apply for an, to apply for a learner's permit, pass Fourth Amendment muster? <laughs> or could, you're talking about a 15-year-old, by the way. Or could the United States charge the adherent of... Um, a non-favored religion with trespass for entering government property without offending the free exercise or establishment clauses? I think not. Of course, in First Amendment free speech cases, government regulation on government property can be subject to varying le levels of means and scrutiny. But Bruin explicitly rejected that kind of judicial balancing in the Second Amendment context. For Moreover, 
First Amendment government as proprietor regulations are best understood as being analyzed within the Supreme Court's First Amendment framework, not outside of the right altogether. The same logic applies here. The United States must point to a historical tradition justifying any claimed power to regulate conduct protected by the Second Amendment's plain text, even as a proprietor. Given the expansive role, modern role of the federal government in everyday life and even more fundamental problem with the United States position remains. The administrative state wields vast power and touches almost every aspect of daily life. Whether the historical record permits, whatever the historical record permits with respect to firearms regulation on government property, that legal principle cannot be used to abridge the right to bear arms by regulating it into practical non-existence. For example, take the criminal statute here it bans knowingly possessing a firearm in a federal facility, which is defined as a building or part thereof owned or leased by the federal government where federal employees are regularly present for the purpose of performing their official duties. The plain language captures everything from the White House to toll booths in national parks to social security administration buildings. Under this criminal statute, with the proliferation of the federal government comes the diminution, diminution of the people's right to bear arms. Put that on a coffee mug. That's a quote. That that's that's uh, that's November in our new calendar here. That's that's put it on a t-shirt. Put it on a a hat. I'm going to read that again. The plain language. The administrative state wields vast power and touches almost every aspect of our daily life. The plain language of this statute covers everything from the White House to toll booths in national parks to Social Security Administration buildings. Under this criminal statute, with the preliminary with this Democrat way of reading this, of, of their reading of their of your constitutional rights, with the proliferation of the federal government, which they love, comes the diminution, diminution of the people's right to bear arms. At some point, when 28% of land is owned by the federal government, and many ordinary activities require frequenting a federal facility, the government's theory would amount to a nullification of the Second Amendment right altogether. Uh, I think that she pretty much nailed that. And then she considers whether the United States has a right to criminally prosecute as an employer of the man and... Um, she thinks that that's an irrelevant thing to consider here because that has to do with uh, the employment contract. Okay, but 
uh, she says, again, they don't cite anything. They cite no reasoning, no authority. It's amazing. As for count two, this is page 41. Ayala argues that he had a common law right to resist the post. Okay, I'm, I'm going to skip that part. Conclusion. The United States fails to meet its burden of pointing to a historical tradition of firearms regulation justifying Ayala's indictment under 930A. Accordingly, the following is ordered. Page 42. Ayala's motion to dismiss is granted in part, and uh, count one of the indictment is dismissed with prejudice. January 19th, 2024. It's so ordered on in Tampa, Florida on January 12th, 2024. Catherine Kimball Mazel, United States District Judge. Thanks for joining me on the Republican Professor podcast as we consider the doctrine of sensitive places, which is designed to curb the exercise of protected rights. Uh, and we'll see you next time.